I think that catches us up. So let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Father, we come before you today because you wrote things down in your word for us to understand. And I pray that we're going to understand. I imagine that many of us are familiar with the story we're going to talk about today. But help us to see something in it that we may not have seen before and help us to understand where we are in history through the lens of this story. So bless us, we pray, as we open up your word together. Bless us with wisdom and with understanding. And we thank you in advance for the blessings we're about to receive in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. The whole first part of uh, my first page of notes here is giving the context to the scripture verse we read, but Brother Gill did a great job of giving us context, so thank you, brother. <laughs> yeah, amen. Um, I, I want to add just one thing to that. Uh, he's right that the context of the first few chapters of First Chronicles is a lengthy genealogy of the descendants uh, of Israel, and uh, specifically here, it's a genealogy from Judah, son of Jacob, down to King David, who was a descendant of Judah. And we find this man, Achar, more commonly known as Achan, uh, in the book of Joshua, but it is the same man. And he's listed here as the troubler of Israel. And the, the thing I wanted to point out is that Achar, or Achan, is not actually inside the lineage between Judah and King David. He's not an ancestor of King David. He's a branch of that family tree. So the whole point of this genealogy is to show us where King David comes from, and yet he is listed there anyway as only a branch of the family tree. He is listed, my point here, is that the whole and apparently only reason that he makes this appearance in this chronology is to emphasize his legacy as the troubler of Israel. That's kind of a heavy thing. How many of us would love to be remembered immemorially as the troubler of anything, right? But everything else in his life that he did, every joy, every sadness, every victory, every achievement, every, everything he did is lost to history. And the only thing we remember him for is being the troubler. So I would like us not to repeat these kinds of mistakes. I would like for our legacies to not be as the troublers of anything, but rather the blessing of everything. Amen? Okay. So we're going to spend some time in Joshua. Um, I'm going to go through the scriptures of the story that, uh, that Brother Gill told us about, uh, make sure that we fully understand it, and then draw some conclusions from it. I, as I said, you probably, many of you are probably already aware of Achan's sin and what it was, um, but we're going to go through it anyway. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. Israel has come out of Egypt. It's one generation, 40 years after they've left, and God has promised them military victory over the entire land of Canaan if only they will stay faithful to God. He even gives them detailed instructions as to how in order to do that and how to ultimately defeat Jericho, which was the first city in the conquest of the land. 
So Joshua 6 in verse 15 begins our story. It tells us that it came to pass on the seventh day of their campaign against Jericho that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner as they had for the previous six days. But on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. So they had already gone around one time per day for the previous six days. And they were told by God to march around seven times on this seventh day. And then God would give them the victory. So now Joshua gives, right, right as they're about to, to do this, Joshua gives them some last-minute instructions which he had received from God. Verses 16 through 19 tells us that the seventh time that they marched around, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. How many times can God throw that word curse in there, right? I think he's trying to emphasize that there's a curse going on, potentially. It says, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. All right, so God had said, that city is mine. He claimed it as his own. He says, do not keep anything from it. Destroy it completely and put all of the precious metals that you gather into my treasury for my purpose. Now, you have to understand, God's command to ultimately destroy wherever they were campaigning against, that was the same. That was uniform throughout wherever they were going in the land of Canaan. But most of the time, the Israelites were allowed to keep the spoils of war for themselves. So this was a unique instruction from God regarding these, these treasures from Jericho. He says, you're not allowed to keep those. Those belong to me. You see, Jericho was different from all of the other ones because Jericho was the first fruits of the land of Canaan, the very first conquest, the very first city to fall, very much like the very firstborn of a family which God claimed as his own in the land of Egypt, right? Same thing, first city to fall, it belongs to God. It's entirely God's. Very much like tithe even, right? The first part of what we receive is God's doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. So that's the principle at work here. And by then keeping anything in the city of first fruits, they would be stealing from God just as we do. The Bible says we do when we withhold his tithes and offerings for ourselves. And so Israel does as God had commanded. The walls of Jericho fall, the city was utterly destroyed, and they went home as, as the victors of the day. But there was a problem. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Not a surprise. Many of us know this story. Achan chose to keep some of the treasure for himself, despite what God had commanded, despite the specific 
instruction from God to the contrary. So when we're studying this in a sermon or in a Bible study, this is usually the point where the congregation or the study group starts to kind of cluck their tongues at Achan and become indignant at the stubbornness of Israel and kind of wonder aloud, how could those people do those things? How could they be so short-sighted? But I want to I, I give a different perspective. I'd like us to have some pity on Mr. Achan, not because what he did was right. It wasn't right. It was wrong. But really, are there not things that God tells us? Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't consume that. And then we go ahead and do it anyway. My point is to make us realize how very much like Achan we all really are and not to allow us to stand back from a distance and cluck our tongues at him because he should have known better. We all should know better, but we all follow in his footsteps, or, you know, we follow in his footsteps frequently. Now, I'm about to throw all of you under the bus, and I'm going to do that on purpose, okay, because I really want to illustrate this point, trying to demonstrate this kind of universal purveyance of Achan's sin today. So if you find yourself getting uncomfortable in the next few minutes, I say, good, praise the Lord. If you get uncomfortable, you're not going to make the mistake of thinking that I'm talking to everybody else except you. Malachi 3 verse 10, let's start easy on this. God says, bring all the tithes into my storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's pretty straightforward, right? But church, have you been stretching that muscle between your brain and your wallet? That is the tightest muscle in your whole body. That thing tightens up quickly without regular exercise. And have you been giving it the regular exercise that it deserves? I mean, how many of us look at this plain instruction from God and the promise of blessing that He gives us upon our obedience, and then we say to ourselves, you know, actually, I need this 10% more so than I need the abundance of heaven. I dare say that the budget figures would not look so dismal in the bulletin each week if we were more faithful to what God is telling us to do. How about this one? Matthew 18, verse 5. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. This is a very straightforward command. And if every one of us did this first step when he or she has a problem with another believer, then I believe that virtually all dissensions within the church would cease. But this is often not what we do. Instead, there is frequently just gossip instead because it is a whole lot less comfortable to go to the person that you're upset with and sit down and have a conversation than it is to find a sympathetic ear and talk trash. So we don't often follow what Jesus tells us to do here. Now, I could do an entire sermon on gossip. I could probably do a month's worth of sermons on gossip. We all know that it's wrong in our heads, but our heads frequently do not inform our actions when it comes to this particular command. Gossip is easier for sure than dealing with a problem like this directly. But you know what? Easier 
seldom means godlier. I'm going to say that again and let it sink in, all right? Easier seldom means godlier. The easier way is almost always the wrong way. Here's the flip side to that problem, okay? The same problem kind of at the other end of the spectrum. Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank that's in your own eye. You know, perhaps if we did a better job at minding our own business, then there wouldn't be so many incidents to approach each other one-on-one about. Proper observance of Matthew 7 might reduce the need for Matthew 18. Right? So we've covered so far tithing, gossip, and judging one another. You think those are the only ways that we fall short of? What about Leviticus 11, verses 7 and 8? And the swine, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. Friends, do you know how many jokes about bad ventists eating pepperoni pizza I've heard over the years? Ha <laughs> ha, I'm being a bad ventist right now. <laughs> Your silence lets me know you probably have heard those jokes before. Maybe you've made those jokes before. Hmm. How many of us hear people like me say theologically correct things like diet alone does not grant us salvation and therefore hear something different and conclude, well, then diet is not important and I can eat whatever I want. Do you do that? Do you do that? I mean, ha-ha, right? Improper diet is all fun and games until someone goes blind or has a heart attack or gets trichinosis growths in our brain. The Adventist church as a whole follows the health message to a much less thorough degree now than it did a generation ago, and you know it. That's, of course, not true of every single one of us, but as a whole, it is. The world out there has largely caught up to us and even surpassed us in many ways. If you were to travel up north to from where I hail, the average Santa Cruz hippie on the street probably eats a better diet than you do. And that's the way it is. So how well are we following this instruction and others like it? Or how about this? 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Whether we're talking about marriage or even just the company that we keep outside of church, how many of us don't realize how very wise this really is? We kind of ignore this plain instruction from God until it's too late. How many of us become unequally yoked together to our destruction? All right. So now that I'm sure I've stepped on just about everybody's toes at least a little bit, I would like us to, I would like us to be honest with ourselves about who we are 
and how close and or far away from the righteousness of God we really are. Many of us choose our own inclinations over the plain instructions of God, just like ancient Israel did, just like Achan did. Many of us indulge in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as it says in 1 John 2.16. This is a problem in the church today. Even when we know better, just like Achan, we choose to do it anyway. And since God never changes, don't you think that it is wise to really study Achan so that we cannot make the same ultimate mistakes as him and not receive the same ultimate fate as him? Amen? If we find ourselves identifying with Mr. Achan, maybe today's the day to make that change. Achan messed up. He is recorded forever as the troubler of Israel. But just so that there's no one in the crowd who's, you know, sitting on his or her stool of righteousness and thinking I'm talking to everybody else, let's go to Joshua 7 verse 1 again and pay attention to who God holds responsible. Look at the, what I put in yellow. The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. That's intense. Everybody suffered because of what one person did. Now let us not forget that ours is a faith of community. It's a faith of fellowship and shared experiences. Christianity is a social faith. It can't really exist in a vacuum because our command is to go tell the whole world, right? So you can't do that if you're sitting in a room by yourself. Our actions, therefore, do not exist in a vacuum. When one of us succeeds, we all succeed. When one of us fails, we all fail. So if there is, in fact, sin in the church, we do have a responsibility to get rid of it. By prayer and repentance, I hope. That's the right way to get rid of it. But sometimes circumstances demand less fortunate actions as well. Now, sometimes you guys hear things that I'm not actually saying, so I want to take this chance to tell you that I am specifically not telling us that we should be spiritual policemen for each other. Okay? That's not my point here. Did you hear that, my zealots? <laughs> we are not to be policemen for each other's behavior and relationships with Jesus. But what I am trying to say is that prayerful relationships, prayerful partnerships between believers always leads to accountability. Always. I mean, how can you be in, on your knees in prayer to God in the middle of sin? <laughs> prayer to God, especially with somebody else, is going to lead to accountability. Therefore, I would love to see this church humbled in prayer. I would love that. I would love to see if each one of you were to single out the person in the room that you are most likely to criticize and start regularly praying with that person instead. Don't you think this church would change? But anyway, sin does not belong in the church. That's the ultimate point here. Because we can hide things from each other. You can hide things from me. We can hide things from the world. 
But can we hide anything from God? God sees all, right? So what happened as a result of Achan's sin? Well, the very next military adventure, chapter 7 of Joshua, verses 2 and onwards. Let's read what happened. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up to attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became like water. This is a mess. They had a clear superiority in numbers. By every single statistic that they could pull together, they should have won this battle. And yet they are badly routed. By the enemy. Three dozen men died that day when they should have had a decisive victory. Verses 6 and onward, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will surely hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do, God, for your great name? So in Joshua's reaction, we see our general reaction as well when calamity strikes the church. We start calling out, why? Why, God, why? And start reminding him that he's supposed to love us and protect us because look at all these things we do. Why, God, why? When in fact, we, just like Joshua, very often fail to realize that the problem almost always begins with us. Almost always. Israel's trouble was right at home because Achan was concealing sin. Verses 10 through 12, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. That's an intense command. But see, Achan's sin brought trouble and even death to others within the camp. And rather than allow the sin to continue, God alerted Joshua to the problem so that it could be taken care of and fixed. So how is God going to alert us to the presence of sin in the church today? 
It would be great if he just showed up and gave us instructions, right? But that's not generally how it works. So what's the modern equivalent? <clears throat> well, I think we find it in the church of Laodicea, described in Revelation chapter 3 as lukewarm and neither cold nor hot. And the reason given for that lukewarm condition in verse 17 of Revelation 3 is because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. The people in Laodicea make their religious experience all about themselves. Me, 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 in the name of God. They didn't need anything else. They are all that they need. Right? And this is problematic for God. God goes on to counsel them to get what they actually really need from Him, telling us, telling us ultimately, that their lukewarm condition stems from wandering away from Jesus. They think they've got it all figured out. And Jesus says, wait, you don't have it all figured out. Come to me, and I'll show you how to figure it out. The fact that they're not already with Jesus has led to this condition. So, If Laodicea becomes lukewarm, ultimately from following themselves, from following their own inclinations instead of the instructions of God, then there is a proverb that is very applicable to us. It's a proverb so profound it actually appears two times in the book of Proverbs, the exact same thing. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Do you remember last week, if you were here last week, I said my fear, sometimes I fear that we kind of reason things out and therefore we decide that our decisions are sanctified. I don't really think that's how sanctification works. And this proverb is telling us that there's actually a danger in reasoning things out. There's a way that seems right to us, but the end result is death. I'm not saying don't reason things out. I'm just saying, you know, we need to be more connected to the plain words of God because our hearts are deceitful and our minds follow along with it. So just like Achan, just like the troubler of Israel following our own inclinations instead of the instructions of God. So have you ever been part of stagnant churches, friends? Or even stagnant periods within an otherwise growing church? What we're learning here is that sense of stagnation it comes from self-reliance in the name of God, which in turn stems from following our own desires instead of Christ's desires. We make this whole thing all about us. Then where is there room for God? Achan followed his fallen heart unto Israel's destruction, and so we can be sure that modern spiritual Achans will do the same thing to the damage of the church. But you know what? There is a danger today that is even more acute than it was back in Achan's day. And that's because we live on this side of the cross, in the era of grace. We live under the grace of God, which means that God is slower to anger now than He was even in the past. And He puts up with our nonsense to a much greater degree now, it seems to us, than it did back then. And Jesus even kind of demonstrates this in Matthew 11, verses 23 and 24. 
talking about, I believe this is Capernaum, he says, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Do you get it? They were guiltier of higher crimes than Sodom, and yet no fire from heaven. It's the grace of God at work. And as a result of that grace and mercy, we often do not see immediate consequences to our little rebellions. We have to go blind before we realize that the health message exists for a reason, says the guy who went blind with MS, right? And thus learned that the health message exists for a reason. The roots of crises in the church almost always go back years because it just takes that long for sin to mature while we're under grace. And so if this kind of sin is festering in the church, we may not even realize it until suddenly everything is a mess. We wake up one day and we realize everyone's sick, everyone's broke, everyone's unhappy, the building's falling apart. Members quit and stop talking to each other, often leaving the church. Families are strained and broken. Marriages are breaking up. The church stops growing. It goes to war with itself. We refuse to act rightly in times of peace. So God shakes us up and disrupts us because if he left us alone in our sin, we would surely die. It would surely be our demise, and God loves us too much for that, so he shakes us up. Wake up, church! You've got a problem you need to deal with. And so what is the actual real nature of Achan's sin? What's the ultimate underlying sin there? Why was this so very horrible? Well, see, God said, don't keep the treasure for yourself, it's mine. But Achan wanted it anyway. What's the word for wanting something that doesn't belong to you? Coveting. Yep, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to him. Want what God gave you and be, learn to be happy with it. So Achan wanted something that was not his to have. He coveted. And have you ever wanted something that's not yours? Have you desired a position in life that you don't actually have? Have you desired a spouse that you don't have? Have you been jealous of someone else? Have you chosen your inclinations over clear instructions from God? Have you made church all about me? All of these things are manifestations of coveting. Are these harmless sins? Is it harmless to covet? Make no mistake, church, coveting is actually the root of all sin. That's why money is the root of all kinds of evil, according to the Bible, because money is so very, very easy to covet. Also, diet. I mean, diet, I, I think we talk about this, I don't know, I don't mean to talk about this all the time. It's just kind of such an easy example because we all eat. <laughs> so it's universal. 
It's a great way to illustrate things. When it comes to diet, coveting is what makes us say, well, it's not tied to salvation, so I'll just eat what I want. See that? It's coveting that makes us draw that conclusion. We should want to live healthy lives. We should want to honor God with our choices and our health. I don't think that we should need the threat of condemnation to make good choices for God. You know? This is all coveting. It's coveting really to draw any conclusion from the preacher except what he actually says. Anytime that we kind of demand that the scriptures say what I want it to say instead of what it actually says, that's all coveting. How about you just want what God has given? There's a saying that I really like. A surefire way to know that you've created God in your own image is when God likes and dislikes everything that you do. Do I have to say that again? Well, you know what? Did 36 slain soldiers in Joshua's army consider Achan's sin to be harmless? Did their families consider his coveting to be harmless? Church, hear me. Jesus is coming soon. Amen? I think he's coming sooner than you do, unless you were here a month ago when I preached on why I think he's coming so soon. And hopefully you learned something from that, and we all realize he's coming very, very soon. He's coming very, very soon. God wants to give us something in these last days that we don't seem to be eager to accept. He wants to give us blessings that will carry us forward into and beyond the time of trouble, but many of us keep choosing ourselves instead, as if we've got all the time in the world. And so I want to encourage every person here to take stock of your lives, like really in a mirror, to really look at who you are and take stock of our lives. Make an honest measurement of your relationship with God. And that's much easier to say than it is to do because that requires humility and brokenness before the Creator to do something like that. It it, it forces you to go outside the camp if you were here last week, right? To really wrestle with these inner parts of you that you don't want to admit are there. But that's what we need to do. And if you recall, easier seldom means godlier. So what if it's a hard thing to do? Praise the Lord that it's hard to do. It's going to draw you nearer to God. And so I invite a spirit of repentance into this place today, into the hearts of everyone hearing these words. I invite that repentance both so that we might receive the blessings from heaven that he is intending to give us, but also because I know how the story of Achan ends, and I would rather avoid that. Let's see how that story ends in Joshua 7. Believe it or not, the story concludes with a prophetic microcosm or a prophetic type, if you prefer that language, a type of our day today. In other words, we are living in the anti-type or the fulfillment of Achan's sin and its aftermath. I want you to see how God resolves this problem in Joshua 7 and verse 14. 
In the morning, he says, therefore you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to its families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. God holds an investigative judgment to resolve this problem. Yeah, that's that doctrine we don't like to talk about. <laughs> well, you maybe not like to talk about it. I like to talk about it. But that's that 2300-day doctrine that is so often overlooked in our churches because it makes us uncomfortable. And yet here, God is doing that exact thing all the way back in Joshua. He stages a very orderly and very systematic investigation to determine judgment. God chooses the tribe. God chooses the family, and ultimately God chooses the guilty man. So clearly God already knows who the sinner is. He knows that it's Achan. Therefore, the investigation is not for God's sake. He already knows the answer, but it is for Israel's sake. This investigation gives Achan a chance to repent before judgment is passed. And it demonstrates to everybody that God is fair in his judgments. Now, Achan knew that he sinned. He did. He wasn't unclear about that. And he watched without saying a single thing. He watched as the army was defeated and three dozen men were killed. And here's some biblical numerology for you, okay? Three is a divine number. Twelve is the number of the church. Three times twelve is thirty-six. Thirty-six men died this is the killing of godliness in the church. Achan's sin killed the godliness right out of the church. Joshua and the leaders fell prostrate before God in humiliation and repentance, yet Achan said nothing. God personally led an investigative judgment of the tribes and the houses and the individuals, and they were called before the nation to determine guilt, and Achan said not a single thing. He kept hoping that he wouldn't get caught in his sin. That's how much he loved it. That's how much he cherished it in his heart. And that is the extent of the slavery that covetousness held him in and has the potential to hold each one of us in as well. And finally, when he was caught, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when he could not escape judgment anymore, when it was too late to repent, when the confession was out of fear of punishment rather than hatred of the sin, then and only then does he get around to admitting that he was wrong. And watch how he does it. Watch how awful this is. Joshua 7, verses 20 and 21. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them, and I took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Did you catch it? Even as he is under threat of death, the promise of death, he still describes the treasure as a beautiful Babylonian garment. It's so beautiful. I just couldn't help it. Do you want to see how beautiful it is? You'll love it too. Look how awesome it is. 
He is so lost in his covetousness, so absorbed in his sin, that even as he's about to die, he is still enamored by the beauty of the treasure. He's still in love with it. And what kind of garment is it? It's a Babylonian garment. That's not an accident. <laughs> Will Babylon rise again and deceive many of us into sin and eternal death by its riches and beauty and treasure? Certainly when the option is, here, take the mark of the beast or else your money's no good. And our choices are, take the mark of the beast or possibly go hungry. Watch my kids go hungry. I don't get to go to do these fun things anymore. Ooh, but look at those Babylonians. They're living it up out there. How many of us are going to justify to ourselves in our head why it's okay to take the mark of the beast? The Laodicean, the Laodicean church believes that it is rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing, and that sounds awfully Babylonian to me. Friends, covetousness is Satan's favorite sin because it encompasses all of the other sins. It might, it might be number 10 on the list, but it doesn't mean it's the least important one. Covetousness so easily snares so many people because this was Lucifer's original sin. He wanted something that wasn't his. He wanted the throne of God that was not his to have. And therefore, covetousness creates a bond between the sinner and Satan. It's a really big deal. Should we be careful about the beautiful things of the world, church? Do they have the power to snare us and destroy us? You have to catch covetousness before it's too late. So next time that we're tempted to indulge in a physical or emotional appetite, why don't we take a pause and start thinking to ourselves, am I in love with this? Am I in love with the world that provides this? Have I elevated this to the status of an idol? Have I replaced God with this thing? And church, we need to repent because as you probably know if you've Daniel, studied Daniel chapter 8, God is holding an investigative judgment just like this one up in heaven right now. Since 1844. It means every moment of everyone's life in this whole room has been under that judgment. Unless we have someone who's been alive since 1844, but I can't imagine that's true, right? <laughs> no. So we've all been living in this final judgment. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, which we understand from Daniel 8 and also Hebrews 8 and 9, and the, really the whole book of Revelation is the final judgment. And the cleansing process includes this, involves this investigation leading to judgment or, in our case, if we have Jesus, to pardon. Amen? Let's not lose sight of that. Jesus brings the pardon because now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Amen? Amen. That's Romans 8 verse 1. No condemnation. Not a little bit, not a tiny amount. There's none. Jesus takes it all away. Amen. Amen, brother.
But in this process, every believer's life comes up for review. God chooses the order. God chooses the timing. God chooses the process, just like he did with Achan in Israel. And the issue at hand in the judgment in heaven is genuine conversion or not. Have I actually given myself to Jesus, or do I just kind of play church? Is it just words? It's deciding who's repentant, who's unrepentant. And so God's invitation to every one of us is to repent and be saved. The goal of this judgment is not to exclude us from heaven. And I know sometimes we preach this as if the goal is to exclude us from heaven. I've actually talked to some of you in this room about your fear of facing this judgment because you seem to think that the goal is to exclude you from heaven. The goal is not to exclude you from heaven, but rather to clear your transgressions through the blood of Jesus so you can pass the judgment if you allow it. He does not want to have to catch you at the end of the thousand years so lost in desperate sin that the entire universe then consents to your destruction when your confession will be out of fear of consequences rather than hatred of sin. God doesn't want that. God wants us to hate sin now. God does not want us to suffer Achan's fate. He does not desire to number us among the troublers of Israel. Amen? But the judgment is, in fact, set. It is written. It is ongoing, and one day, I believe soon, it will conclude. And be honest. I mean, just look around at the world today. Look at the nightly news. Look anywhere, and I imagine you will conclude with me that Jesus Christ is coming soon. One day soon, as it says in Daniel 7:26, the court shall be seated. Probation will close, as it says in Revelation 22:11. The righteous stay righteous, the unrighteous stay unrighteous. And Hebrews 9:28 says, to those who eagerly wait for Jesus, He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Isn't this good news? So I'm inviting all of us to the foot of the cross today, friends. Do you remember last week? My, really, the hope of my heart is that you don't listen to me for an hour and then go home and forget everything I've said. My, my prayer is that you will carry forward the things we talk about week to week. Do you remember last week? Because I gave you homework. How many of you faithfully did your homework throughout the week? I gave you homework. You were to take the matter of going outside the camp. We talked about that exclusively. That was the whole point of last week's message. To take this matter of going outside the camp to Jesus in prayer. To take it to Jesus in prayer. Asking Him to reveal to us who we really are without Him. And asking Him to reveal what in our lives needs to change. That's what we were supposed to do. And maybe God told us it's a dietary habit. Maybe he told us it's covetousness. huh? Maybe it's anger or hatred in your heart. Maybe it's anger or hatred against a brother or sister in the faith. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's greed. Who knows? Only God knows, right? But whatever he told you to do is the thing that you should pursue to get rid of, right? Give it away to Jesus and be cleansed and freed of it. Whatever it is, friends, Jesus still invited us outside the camp. 
to lay these things on him so that they may finally be gone from our lives through the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So that means today, if we are willing to do this, today can be the day that we start allowing miracles in our lives. Today can be the day that we finally surrender our inclinations to Jesus and ask for a clean heart and a pure mind instead of continuing to make excuses for our dirty hearts and impure minds. Mm, that was a weak amen, but hopefully I'll work on you guys and we'll all be excited about this before too long. Today can be the day that we lay down underneath Christ's dying body and let his blood of righteousness cover our sin, cover our inclinations, cover that addiction, cover that evil habit, cover up that impure tendency and that selfishness, whatever it is, to cover it up so that it's gone. Today can be the day that we clear our consciences before God. And if he is calling us to, maybe also today is the day that we clear our consciences before each other. I hope that it's not a surprise that we are not the most peaceful church in the world. We tend to have some strife here. So maybe, just maybe, it's time to put an end to that and to be humble before one another. Today can be the day that we part with the beautiful baubles of Babylon, the alluring temptations of the world, to part with the sinful tendencies of the heart, which are ultimately responsible for so very much suffering. And today can be the day that we become circumcised or uncovered, which is really what that word means. We can become uncovered before the Lord Jesus Christ. He will impart to us the victory that he has already won if we let him. Today can be the day that we choose to not be like Achan anymore. Today, we can be a blessing to Israel instead of a troubler. Amen? And I believe if we do that, that this church will bear much fruit from heaven accordingly much fruit. Do you want to bear much fruit for God? Yeah. All right. I would like us to pray together. When we're done praying, we're going to have a closing song, and then I'll, I'll do the benediction. But this is a serious prayer, and I want us to do it together for real, okay? Because I'm going to ask you to think about the thing that God revealed to you in your prayers for this past week as you're trying to pursue him outside the camp. And I want to really pray about that thing together as a family. Okay? Our loving Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing us all here today. And I thank you for loving us enough to love us where we are, but loving us too much to leave us there. I thank you for, I thank you for knowing that there are things in our lives that need to change and that are not okay with you. But instead of condemning us for them, you invite us to give those things away to you so we might be made clean. I'm so thankful that you are the kind of God that you are and that we can be broken and imperfect without fear. 
Father, as the pastor of this church, I want to lift up this church. And I want to lift up to you each individual member who is carrying the burden on their hearts of what needs to be outside the camp. Thank you for revealing to them what that thing is. And thank you for giving them the grace and the strength that they need to take it outside the gate and give it to you on that cross and leave it there. Lord, I am praying for victory. If someone wants to eat better but doesn't know how or thinks that he can't, I pray for victory. If someone wants to not have anger or anxiety in his or her heart but has lived with it for so long, doesn't know there can be a different way, I pray for victory. Father, if someone wants to be more faithful in his finances to you and to others but feels overwhelmed by economic realities, I pray for victory. I pray that you will intervene in the lives of each of the people who is praying earnestly right now, that you will go into his and her hearts and sweep away what does not belong there, that you will take, literally take it in your hands, that evilness, that wickedness, that darkness, what belongs outside the camp, the impurity of it, and nail it to the cross with your hands. Father, I pray that when this prayer is over and we sing our song and we go home, that we will be changed, that we will be one step closer to you or by your grace we'll be ten steps closer to you. I pray that we will not be slaves to these things anymore, but that you will release us from this bondage like you desired to release Achan from his bondage. But unlike Achan, I pray that we will receive the grace to allow you to release us from that bondage. Show us that there is a better way, God. Show us that there is a way forward that is greater than we can possibly imagine if we would just take these steps in faith. Show us, Lord, that following you does not lead to restriction or boredom or pain, but following you is the greatest choice that we can make in every single aspect of our lives. Show us, God. Teach us, God. Cleanse us, God. Cover us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And remind us how very valuable we are. Remind us of what is waiting in store for us. And remind us that you are, in fact, coming back to get us very, very soon. I thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, I pray victory for everybody here. And I thank you for that victory in advance of even receiving it. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen.